you go up to one of the youth rooms upstairs in our new youth wing, uh, you'll find a number of great posters uh, hanging on one of the walls put together by Tim Challies, uh, an author and blogger that I happen to really like. This is one of those posters. It is entitled, The End of the World as We Know It, emphasis on as we know it, Uh, although it should probably read as we think it, surmise it, suppose it, guess it. You see, you'll notice that there are three distinct views of what is called the millennium, which speaks of a thousand-year period of time, and those three views are really quite different. Basically, the one in the middle is called post-millennialism and and says basically that things are going to get better and better in the world as the church um, grows and will eventually bring in the millennial kingdom of Christ. I don't know about you, but it doesn't look to me like things are getting better and better. And so the other two say, no, 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 things will actually get worse and, and worse, but then, but then they don't agree together how it will all end. One says um, that things will get worse and worse until Jesus comes back, and that'll be it. No millennial kingdom at all. It's called ah millennialism. No millennial kingdom. The, the other says, no, 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 no. We, 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 things will get worse and, and worse until Jesus comes back and sets up his earthly millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And this is called pre-millennialism, Jesus comes back before the millennium, and, and I suppose that's where many of you, perhaps even most of you, um, find yourself. But th- even then, we can't agree on how that will unfold. Uh, for example, will there be a period of tribulation before, right before Jesus comes back? And if so, how long will that last? And seven years? And and if so, and, and this is the big question, the, the, the question everybody wants to have answered, will the church, that is, will believers have to go through those seven years of tribulation or not? I'm voting no. <laughs> well, some say no. Those are pre-tribulation rapture people. Rapture means it's a Latin term that means to catch away, that Jesus is going to come back and, and, and take out His church before the, the, the tribulation. Uh, what, what they mean is that Jesus is going to come back halfway, take, take everybody out if you've read the, or take believers out if you've read the, or, or seen the movies, uh, the Left Behind series. That's what that particular series um, teaches. Others say, no, 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 no. Um, uh, we think the church is going to go through part of the tribulation, and then Jesus is going to come back, uh, again, kind of part way, and going to take the church um, out in that thing called the rapture. They are called the mid-tribulation rapture people. thought about taking votes this morning, but I didn't want us to break out into fights. Still, others say believers We'll go through all of the tribulation, then Jesus will come back, and they are called post-tribulation. That means it comes after the tribu- post-tribulation rapture people. Are you sufficiently confused yet? Um, I could show you additional, additionally, I could show you charts that lay all of this out, but it all gets terribly confusing. In fact, I picked the next one because I love the title. Remember, it is the end as we, th- as we think it. Now, now, why do I bring all of that up? Because 
There has always been lots of confusion about prophecy or the end times or, 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 or the future, and, and that confusion, I think, revolves around two ideas, N- namely, when is Jesus coming to set up his kingdom? Isn't, it, isn't that what you want to know? Um, uh, why are we talking about this, some of you say? Um, some say, well, we're not, you are, and we don't like the fact um, that you leave open the possibility that we might, in fact, suffer in in the tribulation. Come on, you're you're thinking right now, tell everybody Jesus will come back before the tribulation and get us out of here so we don't suffer, because everybody knows that American Christians don't suffer. So, there's always been confusion about the future. When is Jesus coming back and what's it going to look like? End times, the coming of Christ. Even, even in His first coming, they were a bit confused. They didn't even know that it was His first coming. They didn't know that there were two. And we've seen that there was this, at His first coming, this widespread understanding that Christ would come as a political, military leader and throw off Rome, establish that glorious kingdom with the Jews, in short, get rid of their suffering at the hands of the Romans. So we can imagine their surprise when Jesus showed up with a little different message. Basically, he said their charts were all wrong. He didn't didn't come in glorious political victory, he was rather opposed. The religious and political leaders of that day did not accept him. He was not who they were looking for. Sure, he performed lots of miracles, and his teaching was rather incredible, but he wasn't gathering much of a a following. In, In fact, we've seen that with his rising popularity came rising opposition. This was not the way, this was not the way the end times prognosticators said it would happen at Saturday school in the local synagogue. And then you, you can imagine their surprise, even, even shock, when Jesus took, well, what was very few of his followers up to Caesarea Philippi and began to reveal to them the real purpose of his first coming. He started that conversation with that question, who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead, because we remember John was dead. Others say, Elijah, that's kind of interesting because end times prognosticators <laughs> said Elijah had to come first. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, for all of them, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got that right, Peter. So now let me tell you what I came to do. In short, he says, your charts are all wrong. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to the religious and political leadership. And far from setting up an earthly kingdom like you expect, I will suffer much. I will be killed. I'll be raised again the third day. <laughs> Peter remembered his Saturday school charts and 
There's no way, Lord, that doesn't fit our view. That's not what we think should happen. And so he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on your own interests, what you think, rather than God's interests. You know, I'm going to suggest that God has a different chart. See, anyone who would follow me, they must also suffer, must deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow me. But, 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 but that's actually good news, you see, because as I give my life for you, that's called the gospel, that's good news, so also will you give your life up for me, and in so doing, prove to be true disciples, you're going to lose your life to gain it. It's good news. I know it sounds like bad news, so let me give you some good news. Some of you, he says, will not taste death until you get a picture of the glorious kingdom I came to bring. And so he takes this inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain where he is then transfigured before them. His clothes and his face shine brighter than the noonday sun. And, and then and there's Moses and Elijah, representatives of the Old Testament economy, both the, the, the law and the and the prophets, they appeared to them, talking with Jesus, encouraging him in his coming suffering. Well, it was a true mountaintop experience, nonetheless. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's where the term comes from. It was glorious. And this is more like it. This is more like what we were expecting. This fits what we think. Glory, radiance, power, honor, might. It, Caused a little confusion for the big three, Peter, James, and John, trying to figure this out. How do I fit this into my end time chart? So look at the conversation that immediately follows as they're coming down from the mountain in our text today. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 9 and following say this. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? We've seen the charts. He said to them, Elijah does come, restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they, and they did to him whatever they wished. Killed him too, just as it was written of him. That is all just a bit confusing. I mean, what does that have to do with, well, anything? I mean, you have to understand the disciples were trying to fit this all together into their end times thinking, and it wasn't working, especially the suffering part that Jesus had talked about a little bit earlier. So, so, so now they're thinking about this, and they think they have him. And, 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 and so now Jesus catches them in their own false expectations and maybe ours too. This is a notoriously difficult passage, but since we're looking at it in its context, I think we can make sense of it. Let me give you a little outline. It goes like this. We're going to see this command to silence, this confusion, continuing confusion of the resurrection, and then the certainty 
the certainty of suffering. Coming off the mountain, rather euphoric experience, not unlike us. We have a special encounter with, with God, and we think that's, now that's the way things ought to be, like all the time. <laughs> Heck with this suffering. I mean, can't we just live on a mountaintop? Can't we just go from spiritual high to spiritual high? And that's what some churches try to produce week after week after week. You just go from spiritual high to spiritual high Sunday to Sunday, forgetting that most people live in the valleys. And the trip from mountaintop to mountaintop is through a valley. And next time we're in Mark, we're going to see what was going on in the valley while they're up on the mountaintop. They're on the way down, no doubt ready to spread this news. What they've just seen far and wide, you're not going to believe it. We've seen His glory. Come on, this is it. Jump on the bandwagon with us. And Jesus says, not so fast. Gave them orders not to tell anyone about this. Don't even tell the other nine, it seems, until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. This is the only time, I think this is the last time, if I, if I remember correctly, that he, uh, he talks about this messianic secret. But this is the only time that he gives them a limit to it. Don't talk about this. Keep quiet about this until I rise from the dead. Don't miss that. Hey, sure, there's this resurrection thing, but resurrection means death. <laughs> There you are, Jesus, talking about death again. How can you be talking about death in the midst of this mountaintop experience? So they seized on that statement, discussing with each other what this rising from the dead meant. Why does he keep talking about this? Some of you are thinking the same thing about me. They were confused. Did, did not we just see your glory? That's what we've been expecting for you to show everyone who you truly are. Now you're telling us to be quiet about it? And we still don't understand this death and resurrection thing. You, you see, at this time, there was a generally held understanding of resurrection, but that was in the future, at the end of all things. Not now. We don't have that on our charts. And, 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 and certainly not the, 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 the Messiah... Two very difficult things they were struggling with this picture. The same things that I'm going to suggest we struggle with today hasn't changed. First, when, Jesus, are you going to show yourself to the world? Isn't that what you want to know? When are you, when are you coming back in glorious display? When are you going to set up your kingdom? We think we have it all figured out. Second, our charts... They don't have us suffering. That's right. Jesus is coming back before the tribulation. Or maybe there's not a tribulation at all. We've seen your, your glory, Lord. Maybe you're confused, Jesus, about your suffering, and you're certainly confused about ours. In fact, already point three, be impressed. Why is it the scribes have in their charts Elijah coming first? Now, now, why would they ask that question? Well, uh, likely they were thinking about Elijah be, because they had just seen him, but, but, but there was also this widely held teaching that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. 
And that actually has a biblical basis. In, in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. He can come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight beholding is coming, said the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Now we're talking. That's what they're expecting. That's why to this day, when the Jews observe the Passover, they leave an empty seat for Elijah. He's coming before the day of the Lord to prepare his way, and it's going to be glorious. How, how, how do you know that, that, that Malachi 3 is talking about Elijah? That's a good question. You guys always ask good questions. Malachi 4 says, Behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore. There's that restoration thing. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers, so uh, that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So Elijah is, is coming to set all things right, to, to, to restore things, to prepare the way of the Lord. The, the scribes, the experts in the law, they, they taught that. So how about it? Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why do they say that Elijah must come first? Now, you must stop right there and understand what they are saying. You see, there's actually a question behind the question. Isn't Elijah coming to prepare the way of the Lord? Question behind the question that is going to be most glorious? What is this suffering and, and death and resurrection that you keep talking about? <laughs> You're wrong, Jesus. We got you now. And we hear Jesus' answer as he adjusts their expectations, their end times charts, and maybe ours. Jesus' answer is a bit enigmatic, except that we remember that he has talked about coming suffering, and he and he understands the question behind the question. He knows what his disciples are trying to do. They're trying to get him and themselves, more of themselves, out of the way of suffering, out of the way of the cross. Wait, wait a minute. We just saw Elijah. We saw your glory. Everything is falling into place, right? Look at his answer. It's basically threefold. First, he says, you're right. Elijah does come first and restore all things. But maybe, just maybe, the way that you expect restoration is not quite right. Maybe the way of restoration is the reason that I came. And in the next chapter, he'll say it clearly. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Second. You, you, are, you, you, you want to appeal to what is written about Elijah? I'll come back to him in just a moment. But what about what was written of the Son of Man? You want to go to the Old Testament? Let's go there. Let's, let's go to the Old Testament to see what it says about the Son of Man who will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. In other words, what the Old Testament, even Malachi, uh, what the scribes say about Elijah is right, but you have misapplied it, or at very least you have not fully understood it. That same Old Testament also says that the Son of Man, the servant of the Lord, will suffer. There are many indications in the Old Testament that say the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, and that he would die. It's what Jesus revealed to the two on the road to Emmaus. Remember that is 
They're, they're headed out after that fateful Passover when Jesus, the one they thought was the Messiah, had been crucified, and they're, they're puzzled about that. Now comes this rumor of his resurrection from the dead, and Jesus appears to them and says, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and the all the prophets explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scripture. No doubt that included things like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Genesis 3 and Zechariah 12. And I could go on and on and on. Paul, you see, would later write explaining the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he was raised again the third day according to the scripture. The Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of his people. You missed that part in your charts. Third, yes, Elijah must come first, but, but that same Old Testament Scripture says the Son of Man would suffer. And, and, and third, he says to these three on the way down from the mountain, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. He, he came. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. What do you mean, Elijah has come? Parallel account in Matthew chapter 17 makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And Jesus brings John the Baptist up to prove, to illustrate that his followers must suffer just like John did, just like he would. They did to, they did to John just as they wished. What does that mean? We remember what they wished was to arrest him and behead him just like they wanted to do. But what does this mean? This is written about him. Lots of discussion about that. Most agree. Elijah, you see, was a type of John the Baptist. And when John came, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we remember, we go back and look at the type, we remember that Elijah's greatest enemies were a king <laughs> and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel. After that battle with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he had to flee. He thought for his life. He hid in a cave. Jezebel never stopped her opposition of Elijah. She sought to kill him. Elijah, you see, lived under the cloud of political and religious oppression himself. <laughs> and then we remember that John the Baptist was also so opposed. He too was chased down by a king. His name was Herod Antipas, arrested and then his greatest enemy one day caught him, not talking about Herod, I'm talking about Herodias, his wife. We remember she conspired to have him beheaded, put to death for his stand of righteousness. So again, many point out, this is how it is written, Elijah was a type of John. They were both opposed by a king and his wife, Jezebel and Herodias. John suffered just like Elijah to the ultimate degree. Regardless of what Jesus meant, the point is this. I want to say this very gently and very clearly. Our end times prognostications should not exclude suffering. That's what they thought they had him. This is frankly 
One of my concerns about this pre-trib rapture stuff that, by the way, didn't even come about until the 1700s and is very popular here in the U.S. because American Christians don't suffer. It's a deliverance doctrine. Deliver us from suffering. After all, God would not want us to suffer, would He? Whatever it looks like, I'm going to suggest to you that there will be no I got you, Jesus, moments. He promised suffering, crosses for those who follow Him. In fact, we should not expect our present lives to exclude suffering. If our Savior suffered, if they treated Him with contempt, if they killed Him, if the forerunner suffered and they treated Him with contempt and killed Him, should we not expect the same? Here's the good news. He has left us with His Holy Spirit and all that we need to face this kind of suffering, thus proving the reality of our faith. In losing our lives, we gain it. Do you believe that? Let's stand for prayer. Um, Father, I, I really don't know um, how it's all going to unfold. I do know this, that our Savior came to suffer, to be killed, and in so doing, suffer infinitely more than any of us would ever suffer, even collectively, and that is He bore in His body our sins on the cross so that we could know the forgiveness of sin and so that we could know Him, so that we could be filled and and dwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God so that we can face the suffering with great confidence that You have not lost us for a moment. You will give us grace and everything that we need to face whatever it is that we face. And so we will proclaim loudly, gladly, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and let come what may. Because we believe it. And we believe that Jesus, however it unfolds, will one day come. And for that we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.